Oh my goodness, it's actually starting to smell like soil. I don't get super emotional. Well, maybe I do. <laughs> I just don't realize that I get excited about any kind of recycling. And to me, I think what I get so excited is it's really transforming a waste into a resource. I think that really underscores it. And I love that idea that it's not, it's taking, transforming what's considered to be a problem into a solution. It's important. I mean, we're, we're throwing all this fertility in a hole in the ground that should be building our soils instead. Landfills are not efficient, even if they do have landfill gas recovery. It's kind of like baking a cake. I mean, you put all these raw ingredients in, but the end product comes out way different than what any of those individual ingredients was. It's kind of redemption of all these underappreciated underdog sources. I'm Leah Kelleher, and this is Attune, a podcast that dives into stories that stitch us closer to the world outside our window and help us reimagine what it means to exist on our planet. On July 1st of this year, my home state of Vermont banned food scraps from landfills entirely. Act 148, the state's universal recycling law, is going to change the way that we deal with everything we used to call waste. This means that all Vermonters are required to recycle their organic waste by either having it picked up by a curbside service, bringing it to a drop-off location, or by starting a biological process we know as composting. Welcome back, it is 640, and if you have a backyard garden, you know compost is what you New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg has a new plan to make the Big Apple greener. He wants city residents to collect all table scraps and uneaten food and recycle it into compost. Turning usable waste into nutrient-rich soil. Vermont's really in the lead. We're the first to say 100% exclusion from the landfill for food waste. That opens up the decision is now what? What do we do with the food waste? This is Dr. Deb Neher. Deb is a soil ecologist and a professor at the University of Vermont. Much of what I know about composting and my love for it is thanks to her. I've always been an avid recycler. I think you and I are kindred spirits in that regard. Decomposition is one of those processes, one of those that I put up there in the top two ecosystem processes photosynthesis being number one, decomposition being number two. We gotta bring in energy and we gotta recycle stuff, right? Those are things nature does and composting is one of those processes that we can harness and learn from nature. I feel like it's our opportunity to try to mimic, you know, a restorative process that nature has provided. I'm very interested in disease suppression. Because during this curing and maturing phase, we see recolonization by fungi and bacteria and microinvertebrates. They just come in naturally. We don't even have to do it. Nature does it for us and they colonize this. And then now we have this beautiful medium with organic material and full of these beneficial microbes that we can use in a variety of ways. I'm probably one of the few people in the country doing that kind of research, but I just find it fascinating. Our ability to take what nature does so well, decomposition and building healthy, nutrient-rich soils, and try to replicate it is amazing. But before we get too ahead of ourselves, let's talk about the compost process and some of the terms Deb just used, like curing and maturing, 
so that we're all on the same page. Here is the simplified version. First, a good composter develops a recipe based on their feedstocks. Feedstocks are organic materials that you're adding to your compost pile. They may be yard debris and probably food scraps. Compost recipes can get pretty complicated if you're recycling large volumes of organic material with many different feedstocks, but small backyard compost recipes typically follow a straightforward guideline. For every container of nitrogen-rich feedstock, you'll want to add three containers of carbon-rich material. The container could be a five-gallon bucket, a wheelbarrow, a bowl in your kitchen, you name it, as long as you follow that three-to-one ratio of carbon to nitrogen. When you get to a medium or large size, you really want to balance a good mixture of carbon-rich materials like bedding or hay or leaves and wood chips with nitrogen-rich materials like manures or food scraps or even fresh grass clippings. This is Brian Jarose, compost consultant and innovator. And then you have to have enough moisture in there so it's like a damp sponge to make a good habitat for all the microbes that do the decomposition. But then it still has to be fluffy enough, at least, or turned frequently to, to get oxygen in there so it's breaking down aerobically or with oxygen rather than rotting and stinking. And if it has bad odors, that means it either has a problem with the recipe or how it's been managed. Because composting itself is a process that requires air and oxygenation. The putrid smell tends to be because it's gone anaerobic and we need to get more oxygen in there. So maybe a turning or maybe uh, the right balance of carbon and nitrogen materials will help manage that. This is why turning your pile is so important. Deb thinks of compost as a fire. Once we get the, the fire going or the compost going, which is kind of magic to have it start, sometimes that temperature can start to decline a little bit because the organisms in there start to run out of oxygen and they become less active. But if we go in and stoke that fire or go in and turn it, then we're putting in more oxygen and we see that heat up again. The organisms Deb mentions are bacteria and fungi that are responsible for turning your eggshells and coffee grounds into rich soil. Deb says that making good compost is like conducting an orchestra. The composter is kind of the conductor of the orchestra of microbes. Maybe that particular symphony begins with kind of the strings and the wind instruments. The strings and the winds are kind of those early easy decomposed materials. The strings and winds are a part of the mesophilic phase. The pile is starting to heat up, the fire is catching. Later the big brass come in. The big brass comes in when the pile is starting to enter the thermophilic phase. This is when the pile reaches its peak heat, the fire is eating away at those harder to decompose materials like eggshells and avocado pits. You've got to bring in the big brass to get the really recalcitrant, resistant materials to decay. And then at the end, you kind of got to bring, bring it down a little bit and recover from the blast of the brass, right? And so that's kind of when you get the recolonization of the beneficials. Beneficials being beneficial microbes and fungi that help suppress plant diseases. 
making them essential components of a biologically diverse and healthy soil. Compost should not smell. I mean, it should have a great smell. It should have that earthy smell that we all love, like after a rain. It looks like soil, as we described. It's, you know, it's a dark brown and, and it's crumbly, it's loose. Um, it should smell earthy. And you shouldn't see any chunks of the original feedstock. You shouldn't see a big eggshell or a bone or a lettuce head or something in there. <laughs> yeah. That would just mean it's, it's not ready. But when is it done curing? When is it mature? There's no concrete answer, but Deb suggests well-matured compost should cure for at least a year. And I also love this quote from a famous organic farmer in Maine. His name is Elliot Coleman, saying, Most people use their compost too soon. I wait a year and a half after building a pile before using it. That's a bit of the rub, too, is people don't always have the patience for nature. I think of a good compost almost like aging a good wine. It gets better if you just are patient. Composting or some form of it or variation has been here as long as agriculture. In the ancient times, they saw it really as serving a purpose and solving a problem, taking the waste disposal from humans and animals and providing fertility to crops, and they really valued it as a resource. They didn't understand exactly all the science behind it, but worked out the art and the craft. As we approach the World Wars, like especially World War II, this guy named uh, Sir Albert Howard, he was a British botanist and organic gardener. He went to India and he was seeing this used as a, as a natural resource. And he's the one that really developed the method that we use here in Vermont today with layering. As we approach the World Wars, that's when the Haber-Bosch system was developed using fossil fuels to fix nitrogen, basically taking uh, nitrogen gas out of the air, converting it to ammonium. And they were using this to create for a source for explosives. Well, after the wars, they still had this process. We still had cheap fossil fuel. So they converted it into synthetic fertilizers. And I think that's really the start of this, of this huge use, global use of anhydrous ammonia and a synthetic fertilizer. Although synthetic fertilizers have expanded food production globally, they come at a cost. The quality of our soil is really degrading because they provided nutrients, but we were losing our organic matter. The soil's depleted and a lot of erosion and all these nutrients and sediments going down the Mississippi River and creating this dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. A man-made phenomenon is threatening marine life in the Gulf of Mexico. The largest dead zone ever recorded in the U.S. has appeared at the mouth of the Mississippi River. Scientists but how is compost different from synthetic fertilizers? When we apply synthetic fertilizer, you're just giving it this huge blast. And if the plant can't take it up, what it doesn't take up is lost. And that's what leads to pollution. When you have more organic matter in the soil, it better handles a heavy downpour, resisting erosion, but then it holds on to moisture so we don't get these periods of drought and saturation. This is Brian Jaros again. He's the president and co-founder of AgriLab Technologies, a Vermont-based company that specializes in aeration and compost energy recovery technologies. We are one of the teams awarded funding through the Vermont Phosphorus Innovation Challenge. We're setting up this network of five on-farm composting and 
phosphorus processing sites, mostly trying to capture more concentrated phosphorus from manures and then either dry or compost or otherwise process them into more stable forms so that they're not being overapplied and instead are being redistributed. Compost provides a buffering and holding capacity to soil that proves useful when trying to soak up nutrient runoff before it reaches Lake Champlain or another body of water. Compost has been used and packaged in what we call compost socks. And they're like these, you know, snakes that we can put along the border then. And they, they can soak up the runoff before it hits the lake. And then the material inside those socks can just be recycled and composted. We get more organic matter back into the soil as one piece of the climate solution puzzle. The anaerobic conditions in a landfill prevent organic material from decomposing properly. Instead of transforming soil into a carbon sink, landfilled food scraps actually create methane gas. Methane from landfills is one of the biggest sources of greenhouse gases. Compost also returns nutrients and stability to depleted agricultural fields. You know, there's a lot of organic matter that's lost from the soil through intensive tillage and fertilization practices that's gone up into the atmosphere. One of the ways we can put more carbon back into the system is, is through soils. Better farming and soil maintenance practices and having compost as one of those tools to do it. So if compost has been around for so long and has so many benefits, why are people still skeptical of it? One thing I often hear from people is that it stinks. And that stink can attract critters that we don't want around, like raccoons, green bottle flies, and dare I say, rats. Probably the biggest negative that I can think of is related to that perception about the ick factor and the smell. I think the reason why so many of us are uncomfortable with decomposition, particularly the sight and smells of rotting food, are rooted in our discomfort with and aversion to death. You're working through the death of these plant materials that, you know, might be waste. That's a death in where it's a recycling into a rebirth and a renewal. I think our society has really fought that. We just have a discomfort with the idea of death and not really accepting it as just a part of, part of life and a part of nature. One of the biggest reasons facilities shut down nationally is because of odor complaints or concerns. Even the project in St. Albans helped uh, get certification for a few years ago. The neighbor showed up at the public meeting and said, I can't believe you're going to do this and there's going to be rats running into my house and my daycare. Those are real concerns of people and you don't want to dismiss them, but they weren't at all valid for what was being approached. So it was a education process to say, well, that could happen if, if things are just left in heaps and uncontrolled. But if you mix it in these right proportions and you cover it and don't leave it accessible, those concerns should be mitigated. Brian's company, AgriLab Technologies, works with farmers and large-scale compost business operations in Vermont, Michigan, Massachusetts, and now other states to ensure that composts are properly aerated. This manages odors and pests. AgriLab Technologies is also pioneering energy capture from compost piles. 
This energy is in the form of heat created by the compost pile naturally. Remember when we talked about the thermophilic phase in the beginning of this episode? That phase creates a lot of heat that would just disappear if it weren't captured. We've got all this heat coming out of the compost as a product of the microbial respiration, and it's a shame to have all that just go into the atmosphere. But when we're pulling in 150 degree vapor out of these piles, if you're in the suction or, or negative aeration mode, you've got this energy source that hasn't been utilized. So what's unique in our group is we've got a commercialized approach to recovering that energy from the hot vapor. So it runs it through a specialized heat exchanger and we heat up a hot water or glycol loop. We're not making electricity, but we're able to heat up a water loop or, or tank or other water system and then send that hot water to heat a greenhouse, to heat the radiant floor in the shop, to preheat wash water at a dairy farm. So depending on what the site needs are, that heat will go to, to different uses. Then you avoid the use of fossil fuel, whether you reduce it or eliminate it. This type of heat capture system is really useful for dairy farmers who are struggling to make ends meet as milk prices continue to drop. Farmers have very little control over their prices that they get, so being able to control their cost of production by saving labor and energy is very important. And if the farm also composts, they can make money on top of their dairy or crop sales. That's a huge help to have some diversified revenue when their own milk checks are getting smaller. All of this came together at Foster Brothers Farm here in Vermont when Brian helped incorporate aeration and heat recovery technology into their compost process. We were able to bring this compost aeration and heat recovery technology to accelerate their composting cycle, in part by just getting more oxygen in the, into the batches through aeration. You can have it break down in a more controlled and more rapid fashion. And they have so much compost there that we're able to draw energy out of eight of those aerated batches and through our specialized heat exchangers and then we're able to heat their whole bagging building. Now they're I think using 10% oil and 90% compost heat. So we're able to both improve their process but also use that renewable energy that was otherwise just going off into the air. Now you might be wondering, could I use my backyard compost to heat my house? You can't at the moment unfortunately. But AgriLab Technologies is working on that. Home scale level is something that we get a lot of interest from. Haven't found a cost-effective way to do that yet in terms of all the mechanical components, but we are doing some research and development on that. We've got a client in Massachusetts who wants us to eat part of their old mill building that they've restored into a bike shop and makerspace, and they don't want to use fracked gas. We've got a small container, like a 20-foot container that we've insulated to be a, a mobile heater that they'd fill with compost, be able to at least heat part of their buildings by plugging into that. I think there's possibilities of doing this with any kind of building. It doesn't have to just be a greenhouse. It certainly seems within reason that we could see that in our lifetimes, but I can dream for that in the future. Modern-day science is just scratching the surface, when it comes to understanding how decomposition works to create soil in an ecosystem. 
we might know the recipe. We might know some of the, you know, the, the, the things that you do as far as management, you know, how you make a compost pile, et cetera, and monitor it. But we don't know the biology behind it. We're just barely learning that. Yeah, we know there's bacteria and fungi, but we don't know all the species that are in there. We're learning that. And then let alone once we know those, exactly what they're doing. The complexities are what provide equilibrium and stability and balance. And we may not understand it all, but at least respect that. As Deb expands our knowledge of soil ecology and Brian creates new compost technologies, they collect their own personal compost stories. I've had the experience years ago of delivering a trailer of compost for someone's garden. They were so happy that essentially I brought them a load of shit but they were so happy that I was bringing this load of compost that was going to improve their garden. Before I moved to Vermont, when I lived in Toledo, Ohio, we used to get teased about it because it looked like we had the back 40. People thought we were going to have horses or something because our compost bins were so large. We had a corner lot, but we composted all the organic waste on our property from all the food, even paper, we completely changed the whole landscape on our property. It used to just be like a sand pit. We added, you know, many, many cubic yards of organic material and it just turned it into a nice, really nice perennial garden. I feel grateful that I've been able to do this for much of my career so far and, and it is something that can make a difference. So I hope that people learn more about the soil and compost being a part of that. I'm Leah Kelleher. And you've been listening to a tune. I want to give a big thank you to Brian Jarose and Dr. Deb Neher for helping me tell the story of our soils and compost heat recovery as renewable energy. After you finish this episode, I encourage you to go outside and get your hands a little dirty. Go smell some soil. And maybe start thinking about creating your own compost bin in your backyard if you haven't already because you won't fully understand why Brian, Deb, and I love compost so much until you do.